0: For those of you that enjoyed these podcasts, please submit a review on Apple Podcasts that helps draw other people here. Also, if you like this, forward this to your friends, have them sign up to the Substack distribution, things I didn't learn in school, or become a paid supporter. That helps us too. Thanks so much. Welcome, Ray, to Things I Didn't Learn in School. For those of you who don't know Ray, he is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, the biggest hedge fund in the world, the author of Principles, and uh, for many years was my boss. So Ray, welcome to the program.
1: And friend of Paul Podowski and coworker of Paul (laughs) Podowski for many years. So I consider that as being part of my uh, resume on my credentials too. (laughs) There you go, great. It's (laughs) great to see you in your new incarnation.
0: Yes. So normally when I have people on the show, I ask them a lot about the lessons they've learned from the parts of their life that weren't formal education. You're an exception and that you wrote down your main lessons and principles about your whole business career. So what I wanted to spend time talking about is the things that haven't been there. Let's start with the very early years, if you would. When I look at, you know, your book, there's the paragraph about uh, growing up Uh, and traveling with you, you told me some other stories. But I wondered if you could just fill us in a little bit more. I know your mom was a homemaker. Your dad was a jazz musician. Talk more about what they were like. To what degree did you pick up things that were similar to them? To what degree did you diverge? Just sort of fill out the picture a little bit, if you would.
1: I I think mine, it was that my mom gave me an abundance of love and my dad showed strength. Hmm. And each one of those had its pros and cons. Sometimes the strength would be of my dad was, okay, uh, you've got to mow the lawn. And, you know, I don't know, let's say I'm eight or 10 or something, and I don't want to mow the lawn. I remember a case where uh, he said, you've got to mow the lawn. And I said, okay, I will. And I mowed the lawn. We had a small house and a relatively small lawn, but I went out and I uh, mowed the front and I said, well, I'll do the front, but I'll do the back tomorrow then it rains and then the lawn grew up and they got two different sides and that, and this was my nature. He was a strong, disciplined person and I wasn't really, I just wanted to go play or do something. Mm. So that was the typical type of relationship um, to some extent that we had. He wasn't around much because he worked very late at night. Right. Jazz musician. You, you know, I don't know. He'd probably get to bed at three in the morning or maybe later Then he might sleep till one or something. And Mm -hmm. until my mother died, it was more like watching his strength and his personality. Whereas my mother, the relationship was lots of loving. So I I remember, for example, when I was a kid and I don't know, seven, eight, something like that, how she would bake Toll House cookies. Mm -hmm. And it was like Saturday night. And we would watch basically like horror movies. And I would lie on the rug and the floor, and we had this big TV because TVs back then were big deals, you know? Yeah. They used to have these beautiful big mahogany sets that TVs were put in. And then they used to have tubes that you know, TV repair men would come by and fix and so on. But there was and this big box had a 19-inch TV in it. And we would sit down there and I'd be on the floor. And she would be doing that. And and I remember all of her years, how it would uh, break her heart or torment her uh, that I never would study. I hated school. I didn't like school. I mean, I liked the friend part of school. Right. So I didn't like the kind of like you were got to remember this or that and so on. So she would send me up to my room to study. So we would have, I don't know how much time, and this was all through high school, but I mean, it was even earlier, you know, was, uh, and it would be two hours or something. I'd do anything in that room, I'd be bored, but the last thing I would do was study. <laughs> so I remember her her for her love and, and her caring, and that's, that's kind of some of the memories that I have.
0: Your dad, the disciplinarian, I would have, that's interesting to hear, I would have thought, stereotypically, jazz musician, I'm imagining some like a dad, like Sonny Rollins or something like that, like a more free flowing, you know, it's he's he's a post-war father, but that doesn't sound accurate in his case.
1: But um, I think that you might not see the jazz musicians in the context of the lives that they've lived and you might have a stereotype of what they might be like. He was kind of like that on the outside. But this is a man mm. who went through World War II, fought in it, went through the the depression and had to make a living yeah and had to work hard and had a family mm. he was raised on a farm like farming vegetables kind of thing and he had to uh walk mm. like an hour and a half to get to the train to go to take the train to philadelphia to learn his music wow. people in that generation There was no getting around the fact that they had to have self-discipline and have that kind of strength, which he did all through that time. And that was something that was important to give me because I got the entertaining part. (laughs) I was real good at the the fun part. (laughs) But the notion of having the discipline part, he tried to teach me music, for example, a good woodwind player. um, He, you know, he played clarinet and sax and and others and all the saxes and flute and and so on would start with a clarinet yep. and you would do the scales and so on and we would sit down and that didn't work uh, that didn't work because um, uh, you know discipline you need to do the scales uh-huh. and you need to do that like he would practice three or four hours a day wow. you, you don't just go do music uh, you practice and so he had that kind of discipline, and I didn't. And so that was what it was like. It was just you, your mom, and he, right? That's right.
0: But he earned enough, which is something, for a professional musician to be able to pay the bills. Yes,
1: that is something. And he was able to do that. And he also understood how to be financially responsible.
0: One question I'd heard uh, around this time, this may be false, but there's you're, you're the right person to ask. Was your birth name Dalio I O?
1: No, my name was Delalio. Uh huh. D A L L O L I O. And it was uh, a handful and it was difficult for people. Uh huh. So I thought, well, I should shorten it. And my dad thought it was a good idea because he struggled with it also. And I didn't want to change it much. So I just took out that middle part. So it still was Italian and was still the same thing, but I changed it. Yeah, and, and I did that, I think, like when I was a junior in high school, something like that.
0: When you were a junior in high school, you'd already figured out your name was too complicated. That's it's 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 very perceptive.
1: No, I, it's, it, it comes at you regularly.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And you just came home from school and said, hey, dad, you know, I think this name needs a little bit of refurbishing. Here's what we're going to do. And he was like, OK.
1: Yeah, essentially. Interesting. I mean, it's
0: he thought it was a good.
1: He thought it was a good idea.
0: Did he change his as
1: well? No, no. He's he, you know he lived with his, and he was at an old different stage in his life. And um, it's kind of brilliant, though.
0: Were there flashes that you had early on, Ray, and if so, when that your mind was unusual and that you had an ability to see things that other people couldn't?
1: No, honestly, um, it you know it was more of the opposite. I don't like school. I don't remember these things, and this isn't fun. So I thought uh, probably that I'm struggling, not that I have any particular insights. And I'm, but struggling. I didn't even really struggle much, and more didn't care. Right. I know I was good at having fun.
0: When you look back now at this, you say this lack of discipline. Obviously, my experiences with you as somebody who's highly disciplined. You know, intense work ethic, etc. Do you think looking back now? Are there I don't know with a ADHD or any of these types of things? Do you think that you might have had any of that type of stuff when you were so jumpy at school, or or do you think it was just it just wasn't your what just wasn't your thing?
1: Well, I think you know me as I am, and I think um, each person has a, a nature to them, and then they have a necessity. And when the necessity comes in contact with the nature to get you to your goal, uh, you adapt. All through school, I saw. No reason to study. I mean, the whole concept, I mean, of going in there and memorizing. And I have a lousy rote memory anyway. Concepts I love, I I get. Mm -hmm. Things that are just memory, I'm not. So I have that natural weakness. And then also the idea of that study hard and you'll be success in later in your life seems so abstract and remote, what do you mean? I'm, I can go out and play. Right. I can go out and play with my friends and uh, or uh, some many years down the line, my career is going to be better. I can't relate to that. Right. So I think that that was my nature. And when I made a transition, I barely got into CW Post College, um, which is a local college and on probation. I got into that. Well, well, why, why were you on probation? Well, because I didn't have the grades to get in like on a regular Basis, like they said, okay, you're borderline, let's see how you do. And did, did your parents encourage you to go to college or was it more your thinking? I think, like most people growing up, you want to go to college. They wanted me to go to college and I wanted to go to college.
0: Even though you hated school up to that point or hated a strong word, even though it wasn't particularly resonating with you.
1: Yeah, but I loved college. Holy cow, did things change? <laughs> In the first couple of years, it was, um, I stayed at home and I went. To to the college. And, and then in my second couple of years, I dormed there. My mom passed away. And, and, um, that's why I made the change.
0: Your, your mom passed away when you were in college. Yeah.
1: She would have been relatively young then. Yeah. She was in her fifties.
0: Oh my goodness. What happened?
1: Um, a heart attack. Um, and yeah, so it was, and I was with her and, and my dad was there. And, um, and then I, you know, it was a very traumatic experience. Uh, you know, I tried to breathe life into her and all of that. and but anyway, that's when she passed away. And so that was that was that. Any questions on that? I yeah okay. I mean it's a big it, 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 let's
0: let uh, just this whole let's unpack this whole thing. It's fascinating. So you were interested in concepts. And we'll come back to the Bob, you're interested in concepts. Was there any teachers in the school or anything where all of a sudden the light bulb went off?
1: There were always a few teachers and not many who meant a lot and they were people who cared about me and validated my worth. You, you know, we were related to it.
0: Is there a subject or, or stories like you know, that?
1: There were different things. One of them, uh, was, um, thinking, um, of an English teacher in high school and, uh, poetry. I thought of myself as a poet. Uh huh. And I would write poetry. Uh huh. And um and this was a time, you know, sort of a um time of Allen Ginsberg and sure. those kinds of poets. And I would read poetry and I'd write poetry, and I would do that. Who'd you read? Who were you really into then? Ginsberg, Howl. What was it? The, I saw the greatest uh, minds of my generation screaming Howl at the you know blah 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 uh e e cummings uh-huh um and, and I really forgot i i I couldn't tell you, but anyway, that was part of it and but it was a passion of yours, yeah, it was.
0: you told me you were a surfer
1: too. I loved surfing, yeah.
0: So you were kind of growing into, is it fair to say, you know, a little bit of like a hipster, what we'd call a hipster today. In other words, you're a little bit rebellious. There's the interest of in the poetry, you're surfing.
1: I wouldn't say I was rebellious as much as I was in the, totally independent. Okay. I, I wasn't trying to prove anything or be whatever, but the, the high school quote... Yeah, each best friend gave the quote for the high school yearbook. Yep. And his quote and the people around me was the quote, I forgot who was the, the, the poet to do it, but uh, walks to a different drum. All
0: right, you get into college, we'll get into the whole college experience. Uh, you're home and then you have this awful, this awful thing with your mom. Just, you know, describe it if you would.
1: Well, um, uh, it was um, that moment of her dying in my arms. Mm. Um, And then after that, it seemed uh, sort of surreal, meaning I didn't really know how to process the whole thing. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, what happens is you get into the there's the uh, things that have to be done, you know, the funeral and the burial and all of those things. And so they were the things that uh, had to be done. And my dad and I just split different things and we we did different things to to take care of those things. And I still remember, you know, walking down uh, the aisle in the church and so on and and feeling that this was you know, I don't know, some kind of a performance or something. Mm. So there's some element of, you know, shock. What does it all mean? And disbelief. Um, and then the taking care of the immediacy of the errands. And then the, you know, like, what am I supposed to do? And rather than just behave na- naturally. now Because behaving naturally came naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And being not natural But meeting those responsibilities uh, was what I needed to do, and uh, this is a this was a big thing. You know, as we'll maybe talk about later, losing my son. Yeah. And um, you know, when I lost my son, um, and that's the greatest loss in my life. I mean, they're all very difficult. Mm. And uh, all I knew is that we're all going to do it naturally, (laughs) however, however it comes. But at that, so those were the thoughts at the time. Mm-hmm. And then that brought me uh, closer to my dad and it brought my dad closer to me. Can
0: you say more about that?
1: Yeah, before he'd wake up, I'd see him. Um, he was fine, but we weren't pals and, and close and we'd take care of the errands and sort of that kind of thing. And uh, then it was really uh, moved to a quality, caring relationship that extended from then all the way through his death as he was as a grandfather and all through that my family loved him he was integral to our family hmm. um as we were evolving and it really began after my mother's passing hmm.
0: and did he ever uh remarry or no
1: he he didn't remarry
0: And uh, now with the benefit of the wisdom of all these cycles, any thoughts on how uh, beyond the obvious ones, the loss and the recognition of the fragility of it all, were there any other sort of lessons that you think experiencing that at 19 left you with?
1: Well, I think we all have our experiences and we're left with it. I guess my general lessons or whatever is that life is going to come at you and it'll give you wonderful things and it'll give you terrible things mm-hmm. in its way. And that's just life. And if you mm. I particularly think about this now dealing with my son and beyond that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, um, and there are so many things that we're attached to and we love or we wish wouldn't happen to us, but that's just life. Yeah. And it it happens. And so you have to view it almost as that's that's life that's going to come and you're going to get these. And how do you do that in the best possible way? Yeah. You have to make decisions and own it. Don't say, woe is me. Don't say, oh, I'm so sad or because the world has given you something that you wish it didn't give you and sympathize with yourself and so on. That doesn't mean you're not beat up and in pain, but do that, be there. That is that experience, be in that experience and also say, what what are you going to do? You have choices. Right. Uh, At every moment in life, it's up to you to make your choices. You have tremendous freedoms and so on. So you have to accept life. And I think if I was to say one thing that would be the best is like the serenity prayer. God give me the serenity to accept those things I can't control and give me the power to control those I can and give me the wisdom to tell the difference. Right. And so we will have these things and we have to deal with them well including you know the acceptance even though it's painful do, do what comes naturally there's a there's an emotional subliminal part of our brain as well as an intellectual part of our brain. Mm. and Both have to be handled well. So those are my general reactions to, you know, those kinds of experiences. And with time, the impacts of the bad will fade and the time with the impacts of the good will fade. Mm -hmm. I thought when my mother died, I could never imagine laughing again. Mm. And I laughed again many times. And I remember, that I felt I can have a relationship with her. And I and I still do because I could imagine how she would have answered the questions or what she would have thought about things. Hmm. And sometimes I have can have an imaginary conversation. And I try to do that with those who have passed, my son, my, my, um, my dad, and so on, where you can almost say, oh, well, what do you think about this? And you could almost hear what they would say. And that's helped to keep me keep them alive, their memories alive. I want them as part of my life. And also, it's part of that uh, you know, adaptation, so. Yeah, I wrote
0: about in, uh, in Raising a Thief, that I wrote about my mother reappearing at broad intervals, but so vividly in dreams, it was almost as if you were just having a conversation with her, just like this. So then you get to college, Trouble getting in, but then you said all of a sudden at college things began to click and change for you. What do you think was going on?
1: I loved college. The amount of time that you had to be in classes and school uh-huh. was like so little. You had so much freedom and uh, you know, a great group of people. And then I could take subjects I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Whoa. I mean, like everything changed. And then I became like a straight A student, not because I wanted the A's, but because I was interested in the, the thing. So Everything changed in college in terms of the interest in the subject matter and what were
0: the what were the first subjects that caught your I mean I've heard the story about the caddy, et cetera, but what were the first subjects that were catching your attention? Were you, is it still more of the arts or is it already towards accounting? And-
1: no, accounting never accounting never grabbed me. Finance and economics, of course, always did because i since I was 12, I invested in the market. So that was kind of like my hobby. But psychology, history, economics, I think those were the ones, you know, that particularly I loved psychology. I thought that was cool. They made it more interesting. And so I like that. And then when you could begin to pick your courses, you know. Um, that was, uh, that was, that was fun. Mm -hmm. You started with the stock market early
0: on. How much, when you're already in college, how much is the markets occupying you?
1: I almost always had some sort of a portfolio. When I was a kid, I was in the stock market. Then when I got to college, there was this guy I met who had been to Vietnam and he came back after Vietnam and he was interested in commodities and he got me into commodities um, and I like commodities because there were very low margin requirements. Right. So that means you could take as big a position as you wanted. And I figured if you're going to make money, don't do it if you're not going to make money. And if you're going to make money, you want to be able to have as much margin, <laughs> you'd be able to buy as much as you want and or sell as much as you want. And so he got me into uh, commodities. And so that along with my other life was always something I paid attention to.
0: but you're not a, right fair enough, but you're not a wealthy guy that you can buy them a little margin but there's also a lot of exposure and volatility. So did you you know are you learning tough lessons that early on too about the?
1: Oh yeah, of course. I'm, I'm, all, all of that. So I gra- graduated high school in 1967. okay. 66. So interesting. I had there was a bull market in the 60s, and then we started to have a monetary problem. And what happened is, for the first time, uh, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, tightened money. Up until then, it was a constant bull market with up, ebbs and flows, up and down. But it was a constant bull market. And the popular thinking at the time was the economy is managed, the stock market keeps going up just dollar cost average. So when you when it goes down, you you buy some and you know, you just keep buying on a regular basis <laughs> and you'll be good and and so on. And then 1966 was the first time tightening monetary policy, they inverted the yield curve first time since 1929 and we had 19 19- 67, 68, we had the recession. And did you understand all this stuff as like a junior at high school? Well, now I'm in college. Okay, got it. So I graduated high school 67 and then 68, 69, 70, I'm in college and I'm following what is going on in a close way. I graduate college uh, before I went uh, to business school. And um and I'm clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And I this this is a vivid memory. So I'm watching everything close, closely. I'm watching gold go up. I'm watching our policymakers say, you know, that's all crazy and we don't have to worry about anything. Paul Volcker was deputy um, uh, treasury secretary in charge of international. Yeah. And I'm watching the news, and there's two sides. Like the government says, we have there's no issue here. This is all these crazy people thinking about gold and stuff. And then I remember on August 15th, 1971, Nixon getting on the television. And very, very diplomatically, like we had conquered something, but the reality is we we lost (laughs) control of the dollar because we couldn't deliver the gold that we promised. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy, and the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the secretary of the treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. When we think of money like this paper money that you're holding, that was then thought of like checks It had no intrinsic value. And the thing it would get, you could turn it in and you could get gold. And so he said, no, you can't get the real money, you can't get the gold and told the world that. And I walked on the floor of the stock exchange. So this is the year between me graduating and starting at Harvard Business School and, um, and walking on there and thinking there was pandemonium that there would be you know a terrible dive because of this crisis with money as we knew it had ended. And I walked onto the floor of the stock exchange And there was pandemonium, all right, but it was on the upside and it's my first experience. So it took me by surprise. And then I studied history and I found the same exact thing happened on March 5th, 1933, when Roosevelt was on the radio and said, same thing, you don't get the gold, you're gonna get this money. And the stock market went through the roof because all of the loose money, all of a sudden, they were dumping money on you. Other things would go down, gold would go up, and other things, stocks and everything else would go up. And By the way, that's the exact same thing that happened on April 8th of this year, when the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Both basically said, You're going to get all this money. And that was what happened. So that was my experience.
0: When did you abandon the idea of the poetry and say, No, it's markets? Or did it just happen slowly?
1: They both simultaneously existed. You know, I started the markets when I was 12 and I did poetry, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in high school. And I liked the English courses that had it while it was a college. So I was. It wasn't one or the other. It, it was, you know, it was both.
0: And you're and you're writing to this day in the daily observations, you know, you're very, you're very thoughtful with words. So that comes through to a degree. What about the idea to go to Harvard Business School? So I'm imagining from was this considered a super prestigious thing to go there from, I mean, with two parents who didn't have a uh, you know, a college education and to uh, your father had the musical training, but then to go from there to Harvard Business School. That's pretty impressive. What did the idea occur to you? Or did you get some encouragement?
1: My mother had died. And um, so it wasn't her. And my dad was never a dad. I mean, he he wanted me to get the right job. He wanted me to have a great career. And he thought it was wonderful to go to Harvard Business School. But it wasn't him uh, pushing me or, you know, initiating that. It was kind of, oh, that's terrific. That's great. But, you know, it was me.
0: Flash forward a little bit, if you would. They're starting your business. So there's a lot of people who love your principles, who are in that stage of starting businesses. And I know actually a lot of listeners of this and also the Substack are people who are going down that path. They are trying to make something out of nothing and it takes a lot of grit. Talk a little bit about those early years when you're you're low, you're working out of your home in your in New York. It's intense to be alone all day with, you know, now you've got people badgering you night and day to talk to you. Then you're starting out and you have this vision. Take us inside a little bit. What was that like?
1: Well, I I worked, I worked my first job. I worked for, it it had a couple of names, but CBWL, Hayden Stone, Shearson, Hayden Stone, blah, 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 blah. I first started actually Director of Commodities at Dominic and Dominic, mm-hmm. which is a firm that then got went broke because of the stock market at the time. And then I went to this other firm in charge of institutional futures. People did not go to commodities from Harvard Business School then. but I had the background and also because I went from Harvard Business School, I think they thought that was a good thing. I had a boss who's actually a good guy, but um, you know we had some challenges. <laughs> and we, we 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 um we got drunk one New Year's Eve in the company party and um and we um and, and I decked him.
0: Were you a good fighter? Was this a frequent thing, or was this just a lucky swing? No, I think this was
1: just it was you know the circumstances, and um, you know it was terrible. He he drove home, he totaled his car on the way home. His wife chewed him out because they missed the party. And, you know, he came in Monday with a black eye and everything, and I thought he was going to fire me. He didn't fire me.
0: What did he say that made you want to
1: deck him? I had no idea. I think we were just drunk and pushing each other around. Okay, I think I I don't remember. But then there was another incident uh, of that sort. And I uh, got fired from Shearson. But the clients of Shearson loved me. Uh, They said, we'll keep doing we'll keep paying you for advice. And and do that. And Cherson itself liked me to do this because I was doing a good job and helping them. And so I got fees. And so when I started the business and it was, um, it was out of a two bedroom apartment and I provided this advice and then I diddled around in the markets. And so I had the fun of the markets and the freedom of, of doing that and it grew. And then I don't know how far ahead you wanna go, But in 1982, then I had my big crash.
0: It's a beautiful thing starting your own company, but it's also intense. But it's
1: not like that. It wasn't like that. Okay. It was like, what do I want to do? What is, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, Fun and earning. I didn't think of it through most of my building of Bridgewater. I didn't even think of it as building a company. Mm -hmm. It was just gathering around me the things I needed. Mm. Okay, I need computers. I need office space. I need people who will do this and that. And it was a guy I played rugby with. Mm -hmm. And so we could do this thing together. We could play rugby and then we could do this (laughs) thing together. So it was like, I want to go do this thing. And of course, it's cool. So I liked what I was doing. And also, you know, it was great. It would give me money and I would plenty of money to live my lifestyle. But it was basically like this was fun and adventure and try to do it. So the business was not like I'm going to build a business. It was more like I'm going to do this great thing that pays me money and I like to do. And I want to do it with the people I want to do it with.
0: And I remember Steve Jobs saying that. When Apple IPO'd and a whole bunch of people who had been working with them all of a sudden got rich, they started to do, I think his words were, they started to get a bunch of fake tits and Rolls Royces and people didn't need those things. Something along the lines of that, paraphrasing. I think it's pretty clear what the pain is of having too little money. Do you think that Having a lot of money carries costs too.
1: Oh, sure, of, of course.
0: And addictions, and what's the, what? What are your what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I um, uh, I think I think the, I think in life we encounter all different things, and then we have our reactions to them, and then we re and then we reflect on our reactions. So I think people are di- motivated by all different things. Some people are motivated by status or something, or I don't know, expensive possessions, or whatever it is. And I don't want to comment on what other people's preferences are. It's up to them. But happiness comes from a deep subliminal thing. You know, a lot of people, what is what is the void that you're trying to fill? What is the thing that you want? And sometimes I think that a classic problem is somehow they attach money and what it can get it to produce excesses that are not good probably for them and maybe you know are they feeding what they really need inside and like for me uh, what matters most is meaningful work and meaningful relationships did you have material aspirations um i didn't have much in the way of material aspirations Until I had a family Mm -hmm. and then, you know, then when I have the family uh, and then start to, okay, now we're going to get serious a bit. But that was something that evolved in the early stages. There was more than enough money to take care of the family. So, uh, you know, I was able to do that until my crash. All right. So, go through the, the 82
0: crash. You So, all this time speculating on commodity futures and the early stock market trades, et cetera, you hadn't had a bad drawdown?
1: No, everything was pretty good. I mean, where, there's always been times where, you know, painful times, but those were the ones that were survivable, kind of painful times. I remember being long pork bellies eight limit day down days, which that means a limit means there's a certain price limit and then they stop trading. And uh, that means you're losing money every single day and you don't know when it's going to stop uh, because there are margin calls and so on. So I've had different experiences like that, but I'd make a lot of money and, and so on. And all my clients were really appreciating by and large, the things that I did, although there were, uh, you know, those kinds of experiences. I. Um, had calculated, this is 1979, 80, 81, 82. If anybody looks at the chart, uh, look at the chart of interest rates at the time. Look at the chart of gold. Okay, You will never find a period of time of volatility that was greater than that, and I'm including the 2008 financial crisis and so on. That was some time. And in 19... 78, and then Paul Volcker gets appointed 79, I had calculated that American banks had lent far more money to uh, foreign company countries than those countries could pay back, and so we had the tight money policy and so on, and that this was going to produce the biggest debt crisis since the Great Depression. And I was public about that, and it was very controversial. And then in August 1982, Mexico defaulted on its debts, and a number of other countries started to default on the debt. And people thought, "Okay, here's a smart guy. He anticipated this and so on. And I thought we were going to go into an economic collapse because of the debt situation. And I could not have been more wrong. That August 1982, when Mexico defaulted, was the exact bottom of the stock market. And that was the time when then the Federal Reserve put a lot of money into the economy and eased and other things happened. And it began the beginning of a bull market. So I lost money. I lost money for myself. I lost money for my clients. And I had to let everybody go. I was so broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help pay for family bills. And that was one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. It was one of the most painful experiences, but it gave me the fear of being wrong, the humility that I needed to operate, to balance my audacity. In other words, it gave me like the question, how do I know I'm right? Mm. What if I'm wrong? And so on. Mm. And that changed my approach to life in important ways. It made me want to find the smartest people I could find who disagreed with me so that I can have them stress test my thinking. Mm. It led me to learn how to diversify well so that I could reduce risk without reducing my opportunity. Right At That event, 1982, and then, you know, I was faced with a life choice. Am I, uh, I going to put on um, a jacket and tie and take the, the railroad in and go to the job on Wall Street? You know, and I, I just didn't want to do that. And so, you know, I, I pushed on, and that was really um the bottom of Bridgewater, you know, and then since then, um, that that those lessons, the idea of creating the culture that you came into, the idea meritocracy, that the best idea can win out. Mm-hmm. Let's debate it. How do we be, be independent thinkers and be right? Because if you're in the markets, you have to be an independent thinker because the consensus view is built into the price. So you have to be an independent thinker against the consensus and be right. Mm-hmm. And if you're an entrepreneur, it's the same thing. You have to be an independent thinker and be right. And the only way you're going to do that is to be challenged and to stress test and also to balance your risks. And so And I learned that and that was uh, that changed everything. in it. To
0: hear you tell it, though, these years of beginning that exploration uh, after punching at your boss and then the losses in 82, and then I know when the World Bank gives the first money for you to manage, it doesn't sound like, though, that there is much doubting of your path. In other words, a lot of people ask me since leaving Bridgewater, are you crazy? Like, are you nuts? You gave up like a paycheck and benefits and everything to go do this thing on your own. But it sounds like in your case and much younger, the idea of working for somebody else was just extremely unattractive from you from the get go. And the idea of exploring your curiosities and getting paid, et cetera, was so obvious.
1: Yeah, like I've got a principle, which is make your work and your passion the same thing. And don't forget about the money part. (laughs) If you can do that, that's the best life possible. The early part of my money part didn't require a great amount of money. It required enough that I could, you know, send my kids to public school, and that I could do that and, and pursue my passion. Because otherwise, life—you um, miss out on life while you're working if it's not the same sort of thing. And right. to be able to do that together was what I wanted to do. And then responsibilities then come up, and you handle them.
0: So you, you have this unbelievable success. I remember speaking with the woman from the World Bank at a forum I spoke at, and I'm spacing on her name. She, joy. she was like, he succeeded way beyond his or my wildest dreams. So amazing story. And that's, that's well documented. And then you suffer this awful, awful loss. What's that? You know, what's that bed like? I've spoken with a number of friends who've also lost children. It seems like, you know, really one of the most difficult things a person can go through.
1: Well, it, um, it's the most difficult thing that I could uh, imagine. I would have given up everything that I had in an instance, including my own life. Anyone who raises children knows, mm-hmm. you know, from birth, you're worried if they scrape their this or the, how are they doing in school or how is it you know there's so much love and caring and treasuring that person and those people who are your children mm. all the way up to a certain point and you know I think he was 42 and um you know and and a new father mm. um and and so on and so it is, um, it, you know, it was the worst thing, of course, that ever could have happened to me and my family. But so, and it wasn't just me. It was, it was like an explosion in which shrapnel uh, tore us apart. Mm. I mean, tore, tore into us. My wife, mm. uh, his brother, mm. his brothers, mm. and so on. So it's not just the pain that I was feeling. It was uh, the pain that I was feeling because of what the pain that they were in. And how can I run around and help? And what could I do in the midst of that kind of an explosion? And his child. Yeah, of course. We all came together with his, his daughter, who's just turned three, mm. um, and thinking about that future and his wife and all of that. Um, I shared this with people um, online because COVID was happening at the time. And I realized that, you know, okay, this happened to me, but also so many people are losing loved ones right. in their own ways. So it's not just me, it's so many. And then, uh, you know, and we found our, uh, our way, um, you know, there was the taking care of the, the burial and all of those types of things. And then, and, and what we decided for ourselves, that we all want to do. We, we all want to do it in our own way together. Um, you know, a lot of people wanted to come and help and console things and we really appreciate. And we particularly appreciated all the notes and everything, but we didn't want to deal with that. So we all went um, up, we have a place in Vermont. We all went up to Vermont. We did whatever came naturally. Um, sometimes it's one-on-one walk. Sometimes it's crying some wonderful person did a video of, of interviewing other people and videos of putting things together. So we of Devin, hmm. my son, and we we watched that and we had the grandkids and the, the feeling of love and holding and and going through that particular experience and then reflecting on it. Boy, reflection, if done well, is just so wonderful. And so we um, we went through um, that particular type of experience, and we found our way of doing it. So my wife and I have tea every morning. This is kind of a for a long time our ritual before we get going. We sit down a cup of tea mm-hmm. on the couch, and so on. What we did is we put a picture of Devin there, and we and we had um, mm. you know some flowers, and then we um, have had a journal, and we decided every morning. Uh, we'll each journal a memory of him that would bring us, bring him to us. And we would experience both the, the pleasure and the pain of that. And we go through and we would give it to his daughter, uh, you know, so that so that she would know her her dad through our eyes, through those experiences. And we collect other people's experiences. And then somebody gave us um, this wonderful book that you read a page a day about mourning and it actually had a lot of wisdom in it and so we would have that way of keeping him with us even after Vermont and so on um to operate and that was our natural way of doing it mm. so anyway that's part of the process and, and and you know and that's that was pretty much what it and we're still in it of course yeah for for the rest of your life
0: are you religious at all
1: right not in the definition the common definition of, you know, uh, God, there's so many definitions of God in terms of, let's say, Judeo-Christian views and other kinds of ways. There is the force. There is um, the force, whether that's the force of nature or the force of evolution or whatever it is, there is the force. And it gives us, it's manifest in everything that we see, in all the miracles. That's a force that's much much greater than any human being. I mean, just, I, I think it, man can't engineer a mosquito, you know, um, it, but, but by comparison, that force is so much brilliant, more brilliant and capable and durable than anything that man can. That, that. And I don't know the force. I know that it's manifest in all the things we have. And I think that my own view is it's not uh, human centric per se. It's not, you know, there is evolution and it's optimizing for the whole. And um, and so for me, I I feel the wonder and I feel that force and I don't know anything more than that. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And so other things in terms of how it's all organized and where it all comes from, I can't say. But the the miracles of I do feel the force. And the miracles that uh, come from it, and nature, and everything else. But I realize also man is one of ten million species, and you know that there it's all of that. So nature, and you know, man's two hundred thousand years old, and the um, the Earth is about three point nine billion, and they estimate, you know, that the universe is fifteen billion. I don't know how that all works. But, um, you know, it's all part of um, the greater whole is the way I see it.
0: In terms of political systems, do you feel loyalty to one or the other particularly?
1: I have my set of beliefs of what is uh, best. Um, and I sort of wrote those in the books, you know, an idea meritocracy. And this was there's meaningful work and meaningful relationships pursuing the mission together in a totally tra- uh, truthful and transparent way how to get over disagreements and that kind of like, and I've had believability-weighted decision-making and such sort of things with a great deal of freedom. Those are the things that I like. However, the systems are complicated and whatever works best works. Plato described the cycles over a period of time. In other words, each has its own risk and you look at a cycle that what has killed democracy? Okay, what's killed democracy is anarchy. Uh, When the parties fight and the fighting between them becomes so great that it becomes dysfunctional. And then you have this chaotic, dysfunctional kind of uh, environment, which we are at the brink of. We are quite close to that, including political environments and all of that. And when it becomes dysfunctional, then the polarity becomes great. There's the left and the right. And then you have to take a side. There's no such thing as moderates. The polarity becomes greater, and then they fight, and some that's a civil war of some kind, and somebody gets control, and then typically, then the strong uh, autocratic uh, leader is the one, the populist, the one who will get control and represent you and get control out of the chaos. And they become the one. And so there's this cycle. And I can go on and describe the cycle. Yeah, yeah. But each each happens, each has its vulnerability and its time. The important thing is what does it do? What are its results? And does it does it broadly raise living standards? Is it broadly good for the population as a whole? And what is good for that? You know, does it create equal opportunity? Okay, that's this that's a basic. Fundamental, I think, necessity, equal opportunity Do do, do those who are capable have the re- they have to take care of themselves. And those who are not capable, do they have the assistance if they're whatever to be to be able to be there? The America that I experienced in my early years where it was a country of immigrants that and people would come from all over the world and there was equal opportunity and people working well together in a competitive way uh, in which there was a lot of freedom. Boy, I was very lucky to enjoy that. But I, um, and so that I would say is my optimal, uh, but it has to be broad based prosperity and opportunity and it has to produce the results.
0: Yep, I always ask all the guests, I've been interrogating you for an hour plus. Do you have any questions for me? So what do
1: you think about all that?
0: I think it's a powerful story, Ray. You know, I I genuinely like hearing people's life stories. And there's there's so much richness to yours. I mean, I compare the difference with which you talk about processing your son's passing with your mother's. And there's so much more depth and awareness and complexity to to my year, the way you handle the one versus the other. And it speaks to, to my mind, a life well-lived, full of, you know, evolution and exploring.
1: Well, my main hope, my life is behind me mostly, and, and I, I feel good about my life, but that's it's over. my uh, My main thing is that I hope it's helpful to others in some way. And I think what you're doing is great in bringing other people's lives so that people can think as i said reflection i have a principle yeah pain plus reflection equals progress and i think reflection properly hearing those stories that you're bringing to people and I'm, and watching your own evolution you know working in bridgewater like we did mm-hmm. and then also watching your evolution and finding it out i think that that's that's great. I would say one thing more is that I would encourage people, pain plus reflection equals progress, and take those pain, that reflection and write them down if you can and write down your principles. I think it'll help you think more deeply about how the world works and how to interact. So that would be one of the things I'd want to pass along. And I thank you for doing what you're doing for your listeners.
0: Well, thank you. All right, Ray. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.